Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we're in Micah, like I said, Micah chapter 4, and uh, we just finished Micah chapters 1 through 3 the last couple weeks, and uh, Micah, the book, the, the name Micah means who is like God, that's basically what Micah means. The book has a theme, and it's who is like God, and, and it's different things. Well, chapters 1 through 3 was, the theme really was who is like God proclaiming judgment against his people. And uh, the judgment was that because of their sin and their disbelief that they were going to go into captivity. The northern ten tribes would go into Assyrian captivity. The southern tribe of Judah would go into Babylonian captivity. And so prophetically speaking, their, their judgment, their sin has been dealt with in these judgments in the first three chapters. Who was like God proclaiming judgment against this people. And now we get to a new section here, chapters 4 and 5. And we're only going to look at chapters 4 this morning. But chapters 4 and 5, the theme is, who is like God consoling his people? So after judgment, there's consolation. And so we'll look at that here, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We'll stop right there. This is speaking about the latter days. And if you're reading this, you go, well, it's definitely not today, right? Because nations are rising up against nations. People are building weapons. They got weapons programs. They don't have plowshare you know, programs and, and stuff. Um, so we know that this is a latter days prophecy. It's interesting that this is almost word for word the same as Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And modern cripit, cri, excuse me, critics would say that uh, one of them, either Isaiah or Micah, now Micah was younger than Isaiah, so they'd probably say that Micah plagiarized Isaiah's prophecies. Uh, that would be what a critic would say. Well, Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. They probably knew each other. In fact, most, most likely they knew each other. And like I said, Micah was uh, younger probably than Isaiah. But I think that there's a reason that this is prophetically repeated word to word. And what it boils down to is the difference between man's consolation and God's consolation. Um, you know, man's consolation frequently sounds like this. Don't worry, you'll make it through this. 
or God will provide, or you'll be much stronger having gone through this. Um, I, these are all probably true. In fact, we do know that God provides. Um, but when you're in the midst of a trial or a, some kind of a disaster, something going on, uh, someone just saying, hey, don't worry, you'll be better for it going through it, or you'll make it through this, um, it, it, it sounds good, but it's not the same as God's comfort. That's man's comfort. Because what if I don't make it through this? What if, I, what if I'm, it's a financial disaster or a physical di- What if I don't make it through this? You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, because I got laid off, we, we, last year we had a Costco uh, premium membership. We, we started out with the regular membership, and, and then uh, we decided to go to the premium or the executive, whatever it's called. It costs, it's like double the cost. But you get money back on your purchases. So you spend you know, a certain amount of money, you get X amount back at the end of the year. And uh, so that was great. Last year, this past year, uh, we got a $34 gift certificate to use in the store. And so we're like, that's okay. Well, then I got laid off. And so we're like, well, we actually didn't even want to renew our membership because it's like, why, why bother, you know? But uh, we had that $34 gift certificate laying there, and it's like, you, you, what are you going to do? I'm Dutch, you know? I got to hang on. I got to use it, you know? Uh, I really am Dutch, but <laughs> um, anyways... Uh, so we decided, Teresa and I talked about it, we decided, you know what, let's just go back to the standard membership. It's like 55 bucks, and uh, we'll use that gift certificate in the store and uh, buy some things that we need and stuff. So anyway, so I went to the store, and uh, I went up to the information thing and said, yeah, I'd like to downgrade to the regular membership. And boy, I tell you, this lady was a salesperson. She's like, oh, you've got, I see you've got this $34 thing. You know, and she was trying to talk me into using the $34 to buy down my membership. And, and you know, and she was, she was nice and, and kind of trying to make it sound really good. And, uh, you know, um, I don't foresee spending a lot of money at Costco because, you know, I don't need a five-gallon jug of Dawn dish soap at once. You know, I can just buy I mean, I know you save money, but you're still spending a lot when you're buying there. So anyway, so I said, you know what? I want to renew at that lower level. And she kept trying to talk me into not doing that. Finally, I said, you know, lady, I said, I I got laid off. I can't afford to do that. And right away, then her, her... her story changed, and uh, she was a sweet lady. She's from Texas. I could tell. I love that accent. But anyways, she's big, you know. She's like, ah, oh, don't worry about that, honey. She goes, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. I got laid off in Texas. You'll be all right, you know. And and you know, she, I know I'll be all right because I know God will take care of me. But how can she say that with authority that I'll be all right? How does she know? She doesn't. She's just trying to make me feel good, and and I appreciate it. I, you know, I I don't. I didn't think she did anything wrong, but that's man's consolation. But who is like our God consoling his people? See, God's consolation is a lot stronger than man's consolation because God's consolation is definite and it's a promise and it's spoken with authority. And so think about this. What if Micah was the only prophet saying these things that we're reading here today? Well, maybe he's just misreading the Lord or misunderstanding some prophecy or something. By the way, I want to just tell you as a side note, beware when someone has a new understanding of scriptures that nobody else has. It's like nobody else has ever seen this before. This is a brand new thing. I'm the only one that's discovered it. Um, that's only happened like maybe once in history of Christianity. And that's with Martin Luther, you know, salvation by grace, the whole thing. Um, in his case, you could go to scripture 
You could read it, and you could, I mean, it's easily backed up in Scripture. The problem in that day was people didn't read Scriptures, so they didn't know. They didn't know those, those verses that spoke about salvation uh, through faith, uh, by grace through faith. Uh, but, you know, you didn't have to do mental gymnastics. Well, if someone comes up to you and says, I've got this new thing, and nobody else has seen it before, and I would just tell you, beware, you know. Um, because um, you don't, shouldn't have to do mental gymnastics to come to arrive at something. Well, going back to this whole thing about God's consolation and why I went off in this bit long spiel about this is I think that the reason for the repetition is, like I said, God's consolation is that it's going to happen. You see, there's a biblical prof, or there's a biblical principle throughout the Bible, and, and the Lord even says it: by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. And so, the fact that Isaiah said word for word, this is going to happen, and Micah saying it word for word, that's going to happen. I think that's God's consolation, saying it's going to happen. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. So, this morning, I just want to encourage you: if you need consolation. Don't seek man's consolation. Seek God's consolation, you know. Uh, Let him minister to you through his word, through the promises in his word. But let's look at this consolation. So notice in verse 1, it says, in the latter days, or in the end days, can also be translated the last days, it shall come to pass. It's going to happen. What's going to happen? The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. What is this referring to? Well, this is referring to Messiah's kingdom here on earth. Many people know of it as the millennium, which is basically means the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Now, I grew up in a church that taught that the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth was an allegory of the gospel age, that we're living in this spiritually right now Um, and I always struggled with that because it's like you know I'm more of a literalist and I just it just didn't make sense to me Um, but I think a lot of people and there's a lot of different Christians that love the Lord I don't doubt their salvation or their 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 sincerity in any way but they look at that and they go you know Revelation 20 is the only verse or the only chapter in the New Testament that seems to speak about this Um, but you see the thing is the Old Testament covers it exhaustively and the only difference that the old testament had over the new testament was the old testament talks about this age but doesn't tell us how long it was revelation 20 tells us specifically it's a thousand years that's how long the kingdom age will last and it also talks about the circumstances leading up to the end of that age and how it ushers in the you know eternity the eternal order as dr Arnold Fruchtenbaum terms it. I, I, I went to some of his stuff and I was looking at it. And uh, if you don't know who he is, he's a Jewish scholar, great guy, a lot of good information. Well, you know the thing about allegories, because I know that there are a lot of people that look at some of these prophecies and they say, well, it can't be literal. It's got to be, there's got, it's got to be an allegory. It's got to be symbolic. And the only problem, or not the only problem, but one of the biggest problems I have with that is that People never allegorize Christ's first coming. You know, he was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. He was called out of Egypt. All these prophecies having to do with Christ's first coming, none of those are allegories, right? We know that Jesus actually spent time in Egypt, and he actually was called out of Egypt. We know that he was literally born in Bethlehem. We know that he was born of a virgin. All those, we, There's no allegory there. Those were literally fulfilled as they were prophesied. 
So if we take Christ's first coming and we say, well, that's been literally fulfilled, why do we we take Christ's second coming and all of a sudden say, well, that's allegory. It's all symbolic. We We can't literally believe this. I have a problem with that personally. And so when I look at these, um, I, I take them literally. Um, Dr. Fruchtenbaum said this, There are so many Old Testament passages about the Messiah's kingdom. To allegorize such a vast amount of material is to render a major portion of the Bible meaningless. And I, and I wholeheartedly agree with them there. So the prophecy here in verse 1 says, The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Then look at verse 2. It says "There's these the Gentiles are speaking. They say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So the very first thing that we learn about this kingdom age, the millennium in the book of Micah in this chapter, is that there's going to be this huge mountain in Israel referred to as the mountain of the Lord. And the earth in that day and in that age is going to look geographically different than it does today. Um, Either there's not going to be any mountains except the mountain of the Lord in Israel, or if there are other mountains, none of them will be as high or as massive as the mountain of the Lord. Now, you might have a hard time grasping that. Um, You know, how could the earth change and be that like there's what about the, you know, the Andes? What about Mount Ararat? What about all these other mountains around the world, the Rockies and everything? Well, I want to read a few passages. Scriptures prophesize that there's going to be some major geographical changes taking place prior to the millennium, even prior to this time that we're talking about here in Micah chapter four. There's a battle uh, that's described in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, and it, it occurs, and I believe it occurs, prior to the tribulation. And Ezekiel 38, 19, it says, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I believe this is prior to the tribulation, what this is talking about. What about during the tribulation? Revelation 6, 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. That sounds pretty graphic. Revelation 16, verse 18. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. That's during the tribulation. 
At the end of the tribulation, Zechariah 14.4 talks about this. It says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move to the north, and half of it toward the south. So even leading up to the millennium, there's going to be these major geographical changes to the earth as we know it right now. What about at the start of the millennium? Isaiah 65, verse 17. says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now, the rest of that chapter, chapter 65 of Isaiah, describes life during the millennium. So this new heavens and this new earth, this renovation of the heavens and the new earth, it occurs at the, at the start of the millennium. And it's not the same renovation or the same new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation 21 through 22 because that is when eternity starts, when, 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 when the millennium, at the end of the millennium, and then there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, new Jerusalem is brought down from heaven. So it's, it's fascinating to me. Well, going back to this mountain of the Lord that we're reading here in, in Micah chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 48 gives us the most details about this mountain of the Lord than any other prophet. And... Uh, it's, he says there in Ezekiel 48, 8 through 20, I'm not going to read it to you, I'm going to summarize it, but basically the top of this mountain of the Lord is going to be approximately 50 miles square. Um, it's going to be divided up into a northern, central, and southern district. The northern district is going to be 20 by 50 miles, and it's going to be inhabited by the priests descended from Zadok. And at that, in that district is where the Millennial Temple will stand. The central district is going to be 20 by 50 miles also, and that's where the rest of the tribe of Levi will live. And then the southern district is going to be divided up into three sections. The middle section is going to be 10 by 10 miles. Uh, basically, it's, it's 100 square miles, and that's where Millennial Jerusalem will sit. And on each side of that, there's going to be fields for growing food. Um, each of them are 10 by 20 miles on, 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 on both sides of millennial Jerusalem. So you, you get into Ezekiel, and it's just it's amazing how, how many details there are that are given. Well, the Lord is going to reign, Jesus Christ, he's going to reign on a physical throne, and he's going to be high and exalted above all the nations of the world during the millennium. That's when the world is going to see Jesus exalted and lifted up. But, you know, you and I, we don't need to wait until then, right? You and I as believers, we're to lift up the Lord in our hearts and our lives right now. He's, he's to be exalted above all else already. So for us, it's not going to be any, it's not, it's not going to be any new thing for us because he should already be exalted in our hearts today. The second thing we learn about the millennium is that the mountain of the Lord's house is going to become the center of attention to the world's Gentile population. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, And people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Zechariah 8 talks about it as well. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come 
inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So not only is God going to regather the Jews into Israel at this time, and that's one of the other things with the millennium, but he's also going to even use the Gentiles to help accomplish this. In Isaiah chapter 4, we're going to be going through a lot of prophecy scriptures today. So if you're taking notes, Isaiah 14, verse 1, says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captives whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. So the Gentiles are going to bring the Jews to Israel, and they're going to, those, you know, the Jews that served these, they're actually going to, these Gentiles are going to serve the Jews. Isaiah 49:22 Thus says the Lord God behold I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers they shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet then you will know that I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me fascinating This is all going to be taking place during the millennium. The reason the nations are going to go to millennium Jerusalem is to worship the Lord there, to pray to him. Isaiah 56, 6, Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring up to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yes, I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So Gentiles are going to be able to come up and worship the Lord and the temple at the mountain of the Lord there in Jerusalem. Again, this is what the world is going to be doing. But you and I, we have the privilege of approaching the Lord Jesus Christ and worshiping him right now. That's what we're doing when we're coming here. We're coming before the Lord to worship him. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, let's draw near to the Lord and we can do that. We have that privilege as believers today. You know, uh, there was a time I gave my heart to the Lord as a, as a, as a sixth grade, so I was a preteen, I guess it would have been. And when I got into my teenage years, I rebelled. I rebelled against my parents. I rebelled. I, I got in trouble in school. I started following the wrong crowd, and, and I just was heading the, down the wrong path. And it didn't take until I was already out of high school. I was in the military. And it was at that point that I rededicated my life to the Lord. And one of the verses that just just... Was my, it was my life verse at that time was James 4.8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Now, we have the privilege of drawing near to the Lord even today, even right now. We can draw near to him. Well, the third thing we learn about the millennium is that God's going to establish his throne, the throne of his son on the mountain of the Lord. From there, he's going to, he's going to reign. He's going to teach the nations, and he's going to judge all the peoples alive on the earth. Look at verse 2. Many nations shall come, shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The fourth thing that we learn about the millennium from this chapter is that it's going to be a time of universal peace. There's a park right across the street from the United Nations headquarters in New York City. It's called the Ralph Bunch Park. I don't know if that's pronounced right, but Ralph Bunch. Um, It's got a wall with an inscription taken from Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. It says this, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So, So they've taken that passage a portion of it, and they, that's, that's like the theme for the United Nations. It sounds great, but they left off the beginning of verse 4. The beginning of verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They're trying to arrive at peace without Christ, without the Prince of Peace. And, you know, every president, the next, whoever the next president's going to be, he's going to do the same thing. One of his goals is try to bring peace to the Middle East. And you know what? They'll never have peace in the Middle of East in the Middle East, until the Prince of Peace is there. It's just not going to happen. It's only possible when Jesus is reigning and ruling on the throne. And for you and I as believers, we know that peace right now, right? I I remember when my life was full of tumult and full of, there's just stress, and, and I was not at peace with God because I was in rebellion against him. And when I repented of my sins and I, and I just, I just surrendered my life to the Lord, man, that peace that just flooded in, it was amazing. And you guys, you guys that have a relationship with Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it doesn't mean that we're at peace, you know, that everyone around us is at peace and that everything, all of a sudden, you know, everything's good. You know, your car never breaks down. You know, you, you never get laid off from your job. You know, you never get in a fight with your wife. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have that, that, that all of a sudden everything around you is different. But inside, man, that's that inner peace. The war, everything could be just total tumult around you, but you have that peace within you. The Bible calls it a peace that passes all understanding. Man, I, I can't explain it, but it's the peace that comes from Christ, from his Holy Spirit dwelling inside me. Um, and that's the peace. And so for you and I as believers, man, we, we have that right now. But during the millennium, the entire world is going to experience that, those that are alive during those days. The converse is also true, right? If your heart... Not your circumstances, because circumstances, they just happen to everybody. But if your heart is in a state of turmoil or tension or tumult even right now, I suggest that you need to reexamine your heart to see who's sitting on your throne, on the throne of your heart. Are you on the throne or is the Lord on the throne? Because if the Lord's on the throne, there's going to be that peace inside. 
But if you've got, if your heart is just full of, there's just no peace in your heart right now, I would encourage you to examine who's sitting on the throne right now. The fourth thing, I think I said the fourth thing already, but I think it's the third. That was the third. The fourth thing we learned from the millennium in Micah 4 is that there's going to be no fear. Look at verse 4. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. During the millennium, not only will there be peace among peoples and nations, but even the animal kingdom is going to be at peace with man and and even animals with animals. Fear is going to be driven away. Isaiah 11 talks about it. Verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with a lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. Together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to be just an amazing time when Jesus Christ is reigning here physically on the earth. All these things the world is going to experience during the millennium, but you and I, we can experience them. We have the privilege of experiencing God's presence. We have the privilege of of experiencing his ruling and reigning over us, his teaching and guiding us, and that peace and that lack of fear that comes from just surrendering your life to the Lord. We, We can do that right now as believers. Verse 5. For all people will walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the the Lord our God forever and ever. It seems to indicate that during the millennium, people are still going to have the choice to love the Lord or not from their hearts. God's not going to compel them to love him and to walk in his ways. In fact, the millennium ends with a revolt against Jesus' rule and authority there. Um, at the very end of the millennium, we, we won't get that into that today because Micah doesn't discover or doesn't talk about that in this passage. But during that time, people will have a choice, and of course, we have that choice right now. We have that choice if we want to surrender to the Lord, if we want to just allow Him to reign and rule on our in our throne of our hearts today. You have that choice. Well, going on here, verse six, it says, "In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame." I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come. uh, Even the former dominion shall come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. You know, we always think it's survival of the fittest, right? Only the strong survive. You watch movies, and it's always the strong that make it through whatever trials and difficulties, and they survive it. But you see, with the millennium, it's not a survival of the fittest. It's not the strong who are going to survive and make it into the millennium. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. God has a record of taking the humble, the weak, the outcasts, the lame, and the afflicted, and making them whole and using their lives for his glory. All you have to do is look around in this room, right? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1.26, 
For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I look around us, and it's not a knock on you guys, but there's, we're, not all, we're not like scholars here. We're not, maybe some of you are scholars. You're more of a scholar than others. You're probably more of a scholar than me or, or wealthier or more influential or not. God takes the weak things of the world. He's got a, that's his track record of taking the weak and the humble and the meek and using them for his glory. Why? So that he gets the glory. We can't, we can't take any credit for it. Well, now Micah switches from the distant future, for them that would be the millennium, back to the near future, the coming captivities in verse 9. It says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in, labor, uh, be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pains. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Their human kings will fail them and disappear. Their counselors, their prophets will perish. They're going to have pains like the pain of a woman going into, into labor. You know, he's even looking beyond the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. That occurs 100 years after, roughly 100 years after the Assyrian captivity. What's interesting about that, Micah's prophecies, most scholars believe Micah's prophecies were written sometime around the range of 735 to 710 B.C., Assyria, during that time, 735-17, Assyria was the dominant world power at this time. Babylon, it was like a backwater nation back then. It was not even a world power. It wasn't even a threat to Judah that time. Not until 606, roughly, B.C. was when Babylon would come to, to power. And then they would be a threat to Israel. So Micah's prophesying these things, mentioning Babylon. You could imagine these guys reading Babylon. Why is he talking about Babylon? You know, What does that have to do with anything? It wasn't until 586 B.C. Jerusalem would finally be destroyed by the Babylonians. And at that time, they're going to be led forth from the city of Jerusalem as a result of their sin and their disobedience. But here's God's consolation. He's not forgotten them. He's not forsaken them. He's going to deliver them from the hand of their enemies. So even in, even in that judgment, God's consoling them. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to redeem you. Verse 11 now also many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled and let her eye look upon Zion for they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. 
Again, Micah seems to be looking to the distant future, which would be to our day. Um, You know, ever since Israel has been reborn as a nation, the Arab nations on a number of times have gathered against Israel to wipe them off the face of the map. That's been their goal. It's still their goal even today. 1948 and 49, the War of Independence. 1967, 1973. I mean, there's all these times when the nations have tried to gather around them, the Arab nations specifically, to try to wipe this tiny nation state off the map. You know, even ISIS, there's there's one of their lead guys, the ISIS lead guys, sent out some communication to Israel this past week saying, you know, you can basically saying you can run, but you can't hide. You know, we're coming after you. We're coming into Israel. We're going to get you and we're going to kill you and stuff. And and that's their thoughts. They're they're just going to wipe Israel off the face of the map. But the thing is, they don't know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. God has miraculously allowed Israel to survive through these. um, If you go back into the history and look at some of these battles that took place in our recent history, you'd be amazed at the miracles that occurred during that time. And, and even the secular Jews are like, we just, we don't, God must have done this. They, don't, they, they have no answer for it. But I do. It's because God has always been protecting them. God has a plan and a purpose for Israel, even today. Now, Micah may be looking beyond these relatively minor, when I call relatively, relatively minor wars, to a major one coming yet on the horizon. And I think he might be referring to that war described in 38 and 39 that I mentioned in the beginning. Um, that is when the army of Gog, who most people commonly think of as Russia, joins forces with other nations to surround and attract, to attack Israel. And, you know, it's fascinating to me, you know, when when our current president was campaigning against uh, Mitt Romney, one of the things that Mitt Romney said was, you know, one of the one of the one of the next threats for the United States to worry about is Russia. And I don't know if you ever saw that debate, but he was mocked by Obama like, you know, Russia, that that's over. Well, guess what? It's not over. The bear is coming back in force, right? Russia is, uh, Putin is, he's wanting to revive that Soviet empire. And uh, he's there, he's got his, he's, he's, he's becoming the dominant superpower in the Middle East right now by, by involved, being involved with uh, Syria and Iran and, and Lebanon and all those areas over there. And uh, so when we read these things, man, I tell you, it, it just fits prophecy. It fits prophecy. Well, in the Ezekiel thirty-eight, thirty-nine, the army of Gog is going to join forces with other nations, and they're listed there. Some of them are like Libya and Persia, which is Iran, and they're going to surround and attack Israel. And I, again, I believe this battle prophetically takes place prior to the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon concludes with the start of the millennium, but this battle of Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine, it's not going to be fought by Israel. It's going to be fought by the Lord himself. And God is going to make their horn, which in the Bible, a horn is a symbol of power, iron. And God is going to defeat Gog, the armies of Gog and his his allies there in the hills around Israel. Those nations gain and substance, it says, is going to be consecrated to the Lord of the whole earth. And what I think this might be referring to is the end of the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And that's the reason why I say I think this battle is before 
the Battle of Armageddon is because at the end of this battle, Israel is going to take the armies of Gog, they're going to bury them, and they're going to take their weapons and fuel and use them as heating fuel, as fuel for their nation for seven years. And so that doesn't fit in with the tribulation, with the, with the end of the tribulation. So that's why I think this battle actually takes place prior to uh, the Battle of Armageddon. But in any event, which, whatever battle this is referring to, ultimately Israel's victory over the nations of the world, uh, the ultimate, ultimate, excuse me, Israel's ultimate victory will be during the millennium or during the kingdom age when Jesus Christ reigns and rules in Israel, in Jerusalem. But, you know, throughout most of their history, Israel has been hated by the nations who have wanted to defile and destroy her. But they don't know God's thoughts for Israel, nor do they understand his counsel. You know, you look at, you look at the nation of Israel today, and they're not a, like a, a, by and far, they're a secular nation. Many of the Jews, they don't, they don't, they don't even believe in God, or they have these weird beliefs. or something. They're not following uh, Judaism even necessarily, a good, a good portion of them. And they may have done some things. They may have failed in, in, certain, in certain ways. But, you know, it's not dependent upon them. It's dependent upon God's grace. And, and God still loves them. And God still has a plan for them in history. And he's faithful to his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to David. And, and God's the one who's faithful. I look at my life. I'm not always faithful to the Lord. I, I, I blow it sometimes. I do things I shouldn't do. And God still loves me, and God still has a plan and a purpose. And that, that's his grace. It's the same for you, for each one of us here today. God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us, but it has to start with the right relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. It, it has to start there. You, you're not going to be blessed until you surrender your life to the Lord. You know, I wonder... How often during our day our thoughts turn to the Lord? Have you ever, you ever, you know, during the day, do your thoughts sometimes just you just start thinking about Jesus or you start thinking about the Lord? And I don't want anybody to answer that, but just think about that. How often during 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 your day do you think about the Lord, or are you so busy that you just you know you just don't think about Him? Listen to this Psalm forty verse five: Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. God is always thinking about you. He's always, you're always on his heart. You're always on his mind. You're all, he's always thinking about his plan for your life today. I just want to encourage you with that. Jesus loves you so much. What an amazing consolation. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 5, the second part of God's consolation here. Uh, through the prophet Micah.